When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think, you know, in some respects, the best sort of television has almost replaced a certain kind of novel, I think. That's the novelist Don DeLillo, author of books including Underworld and Mao Too. We'll hear more from him soon in this episode about writers of fiction making their way into TV, into films, into Hollywood. I'm Adam Coleman, welcoming you to this Hollywood edition of the Writers' Institute, brought to you by the New York State Writers' Institute and LitHub. There's a Hollywood resonance to a lot of conversations you'll hear for this series. Novelists, for instance, often have their work adapted into films or television shows, and sometimes they do the adapting. The founder of the New York State Writers' Institute, William Kennedy, describes the Institute's own invitation of Hollywood writers. At the Writers' Institute, we branched out and invited directors from the movie business, playwrights. William Kennedy himself has had his work adapted into a Jack Nicholson, Meryl Streep film, and he was a screenwriter for Francis Ford Coppola's Cotton Club. A lot of novelists are never really far from the world of cinema and television. And for this episode, we're talking about those connections. I spoke with the short story writer and novelist Amelia Gray, whose books include Isadora and Museum of the Weird. She's also been a TV writer for shows like Mr. Robot, created by Sam Esmail, starring Rami Malek, Gaslit from Robbie Pickering, and Maniac, created by Patrick Somerville, starring Jonah Hill and Emma Stone. I asked Amelia Gray about the similarities slash differences between writing for the page and writing for TV? I mean, it all comes down to character in, in either form, in any form. It comes down to characters, the relationships between characters, and telling a, a really good story. So a lot of that is similar and links up one-to-one. But I think the thing that was most surprising was what a team sport writing for TV is and what a job it is to serve whoever the the person whose show you're you're working on for example i started writing for tv on pat somerville's show maniac he hired me on i was a staff writer you know i published five books by then and i was used to being in charge of my own story and then coming in realizing that at the end of the day i was supporting patrick's idea of the story and it was it was all of us working together in the writers room there were six of us writers, but at the end of the day, it's Patrick's show and Patrick's idea. So that was a big surprise and adjustment to go from working kind of alone in a, in a dark room to really serving the narrative that somebody else was coming up with. When I'm not writing fiction, I was working in advertising and marketing, and there's a feeling to working on a project with a bunch of people and a creative director and your team and everybody in it together and the sense or feeling of like, okay, we have a brief, we have some points we want to hit, 
and in TV, it was, you know, a kind of a similar thing. We're supporting a creative idea, but we still have creative executives and we still have production needs and we still have our creative director as a showrunner. It was something I needed to learn to love and work with and thrive in, and, and I think I have. The idea of learning to love writing in Hollywood reminds me of that familiar idea about writers who don't love it and don't learn to love Hollywood. In the Writers Institute's archives, I heard the writers Russell Banks and Don DeLillo talk about the novelist Nelson Algren's disappointments in Hollywood, specifically when the director Otto Preminger adapted Algren's novel, The Man with the Golden Arm, into a 1955 Frank Sinatra film. Here's Russell Banks. Uh, we were talking a little bit about this earlier. Algren had a kind of innocence, I think, that led to those expectations. They weren't really even expectations. They were hopes against which he protected himself with, with cynicism and, uh, and bitterness, um, but still he, he maintained those hopes. And when he went out to Hollywood, ostensibly to write the film and to become involved in it, and he had with him that fantasy that so many American writers have when Hollywood comes knocking, that you know they'll come answer the door and, and run out there and they're gonna become rich and famous at the same time. And there's somehow whatever affected all the other writers who ever had that same fantasy wasn't going to affect them. They were somehow immune from that. Uh, when the film was essentially taken away from him and made into Otto Preminger's film, um, he became angry and bitter over that. In a way, regardless of the actual film itself. I mean, it was a naive, I won't say naivete, it was more innocence, really, mm. than anything else. So you have these different collaborative stories. Like Algren, you've worked with incredible people. Like Algren had Preminger adapting his book. You've worked with Sam Esmail. You've worked with Patrick Somerville. And you've had... Sounds like a really good experience. Explain a little bit how it went well or how, as you said, you, you learned to love it. One trick is that I never came into Hollywood hoping to adapt anything of my own outright. And actually, I think that was my secret weapon in the end. I'll tell you what, my agents were disappointed when <laughs> they thought they were taking on, you know, a short story writer with 200 short stories and two books and, you know, oh my God, so much intellectual property we can mine and turn into a whole stable of content. And they quickly learned that uh, my work is generally not adaptable. <laughs> it's just too much of what it is. It's too much of a short stories or a, you know, a internal novel. You'd, you could really, you could maybe do do the novels, but you'd have to totally prop it up with actual stuff that TV and features are made out of plots and resolutions and midpoints and turns and lots of technical stuff. But I came in saying, like, I want to work on other people's stuff, partly because I never went to school for any of this stuff and I felt a total imposter thing and I wanted to come in and say, like, okay, how do I, step one, do this? And then, yeah, being lucky enough to work with people that are brilliant and who had been doing it longer than me gave me a sense of what and how to do. And, you know, I didn't have to worry about the romanticism or the disappointment of having my own work adapted or torn apart or anything. It's also a really weird time for features specifically. I think to me, I'm lucky enough that I have enough of a skill set to work in different genres. And so I just take that luck 
for what it is and try not to push it into mixing up my genres, you know, to say like, okay, now this short story is going to be a feature film or a TV show. And it's such a hat trick. I'm always really impressed when people do it. You know, Patrick did it with um, Station Eleven. You're describing almost totally different approaches to writing and you're able to just do both. Is it, does it feel like you're switching from one to the other? Like I'm now a prose writer. I'm writing short fiction. That's a different me. Or I am now working on TV. This is, this is another me. I think it is kind of, I always wanted to say like, no, no, it's the same. It's the same me. It's coming from the same brain. But uh, I was just working on Gaslit, which uh, my friend Robbie Pickering created. And I was producing it and I was his co-EP on it and, you know, on production for the whole time and and really had a lot, a big hand in the writing of, of a lot of it. And, and I stopped sitting and writing my fiction every day, which I had done for 15 or 16 years every day. And it was only when production was over and the show had come out that I said, I, like, I need to go back and re-remember how to sit down and write fiction for 30 minutes a day it's like writing writing a television show I don't know I I think about this sometimes because I really couldn't define it precisely for you but I remember looking at the board for Mr. Robot season four which is what I worked on and we had so many episodes I want to say we had 14 episodes we might have landed at 12 I cannot remember we had so many episodes of that show that season and I was like, this is two and a half novels worth of organizing, you know, and that's like a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. Even just f- like forget about, you know, you start, like I said, with the characters and the relationships and telling a story that people actually respond to and feels real and true. And but then uh, on top of that, it's got to make sense and it has to be engaging and, and interesting and all the plot lines have to work and in Robot, there is this additional complication of all, you've got this hacker and all his hacks have to work and they have to be real and not lame and fun. And it's an action show and, and it's organizing. It's a huge production to figure it out. And then I wasn't even on production for it, but on production on Gaslit, it's a whole, then it's like you're planning a wedding every day for a hundred days. <laughs> and that's a that's a whole other thing, and you have a ton of help. Or you know, I had a you've got a line producer and directors, assistant directors, and Robbie's the showrunner, and and under all this pressure, and we're talking to lawyers because it's a true story. It's all Watergate, and the complications mount and mount, and so it's really fun. But yeah, I can I I, I would get further and further away from writing a little short story, which is I think where my heart lives and where I feel the best. It sounds like such a gnarly beast making a serial TV show. It sounds like it involves so much, but th- there are sort of, stru- there are structuring principles that I'm assuming can help. If it's a serial show, there's some established, I don't know, approach to dramatic beats. Are there formal stars that you sail by or then again, these are all pretty inventive shows you're describing. Is it just mm-hmm. like we're all figuring it out as we go? Well, it depends who is running the show. I know that Sam Esmail has a certain way of working, and he really likes to have, in major scenes, he likes to have a, a turn in the scene, a reversal of, of expectations. It, it gives the scene texture. That's kind of how we did in Gaslit as well. 
and I like it formally. But I will say that I've never written for network TV, and that has some real rules. People who work for network TV have to tell an engaging, entertaining story, and it's like the A story and the B story have to connect at a certain point, and the the characters need to restate the premise at the beginning of each act, and there's a whole bunch of rules that I don't even understand. But the shows that I've worked on don't have such a careful roadmap. But it is, you know, now that I've done it a little bit, I can I can appreciate a good turn in a scene and I can see where it's missing, where a scene feels a little bit flat or it's like, oh, that was a funny scene with people saying funny things and nothing really happened, you know. Coming up. Don DeLillo and Russell Banks on a writer with an unhappy experience of show business. Here we are back in the Writers Institute, finding out what happens when writers go Hollywood. The 20th century Chicago writer Nelson Algren was once one of the most highly renowned American novelists, and he's still highly regarded, but less well known. He wrote about gamblers and struggling schemers, about people on the lower rungs, and he wasn't happy with his encounter with Hollywood glamour, specifically when the director Otto Preminger adapted his novel of drug addiction, The Man with the Golden Arm, into a Frank Sinatra film. We've already heard a little about his disappointment, but Algren's successes endure, including through writers he befriended and influenced, like the novelists Don DeLillo and Russell Banks, who spoke together in Albany in 2006 at the Writers' Institute about their friend, his writing, and his Hollywood difficulties. Starting us off here is DeLillo, author of novels including Underworld. The other voice you'll hear is, again, Russell Banks, author of novels including The Sweet Hereafter. You might remember a few seconds of this from our show with Jonathan Franzen. Well, Otto Preminger, who directed like to say, I don't get ulcers, I give them. He did a number of films on controversial subjects, and this was one of the more preeminent, dealing with dope addiction. A heroin addict in the mid-1950s was, was fairly daring. Mm. Preminger did other movies that had a certain daring uh, feel to them, but he was also quite objective in, in terms of filmmaking itself. Very objective, and I think it detracts from most movies, but more than most, from this movie. It's a little too straightforward, perhaps. As some of you may know, uh, Nelson Algren came to despise Preminger uh, intensely, but, but perhaps we'll get around to that uh, as we continue. Russell and I, didn't know each other in the early or mid-60s, but each of us, coincidentally, met Algren. Russell met him in 63, I met him in 64. We both profited enormously from the association. Mm -hmm. And uh, in connection with this movie, I'd like to read um, one paragraph from a letter I got from Nelson in 1967. Uh, there's a reference here to World War III, which is, in fact, a reference to the war in Vietnam. I'm so used to living on the brink that I don't mind it anymore. It's like living in a house on stilts all your life. 
When the water comes in, it'll come. Maybe I won't be home, is my thinking. Not only that, but it pays. Every time I make a talk announcing we are now in World War III, which I've been doing for over a year, I get $500 and expenses. Talked at SMU in Dallas last week in an address so moving that the question and answer period raised the single question. What did you think of Sinatra in the movie? <laughs> well, the first thing that goes in any adaptation of any novel is the voice, um, is the language. And, and Algren's work is certainly as much as any writer of his generation, and, and more than any I can think of off the top of my head, uh, resided in that voice, um, that irascible and lyrical and, and compressed and yet dense voice that all his work had, and, and Man with the Golden Arm certainly had that, and, and that's absent. And then the dialogue off the page in the mouths of actors who never has any of the life that, that it has in the novel, never mind the quality of, uh, the moral quality of the novel, which is that Algren believed, I think, in doom and damnation, especially for the kind of people that he was writing about, people at the bottom of the ladders and uh, all the ladders, and the film gives the lie to that belief. So I think that's the darkest and the hardest thing for any novelist to swallow in the adaptation of a film in which he had to, you don't mind the changing of the plot, you don't mind the cutting and the elisions and the, and the eliminations of characters that, that have to take place when you reduce a novel that takes 14 or 20 hours to read to two hours of, of watching a film. You understand and know that right away, but you hope that somehow the moral point of view, the, the ethical point of view of the novelist, which is so central to the novel, will remain, and that did not. The film created a certain amount of excitement uh, in, in terms of the titles, which were designed by Saul Bass, who was quite proficient at this and did a number of movies for Preminger and for Alfred Hitchcock and others, and the fact that this movie has a jazz background. Mm -hmm. uh, which, is, which is also fairly unusual then. I mean, for the mid-50s, there were elements in the movie that had a certain attraction for, for many intelligent people. But these are peripheral, relatively peripheral matters, actually. And the heart of the film was difficult for Nelson himself to take, for all the reasons uh, Russell has been discussing, but also because he felt Preminger withheld a great deal of money that was oh, yeah, coming to him. Yeah. And these were Nelson's themes, money, horse racing, playing poker, money. And money. Uh, and, and money and, <laughs> and, and writing. I mean, he, he was very interested in other writers. He spoke about other writers frequently. In my own limited experience, the only things he had to say about the movie concerned the fact that uh, he wasn't being paid what he felt he should have been paid. And at this event, Don DeLillo and Russell Banks read from Nelson Algren's novel at issue here, The Man with the Golden Arm. Don DeLillo started off. First paragraph or two paragraphs? Yeah, I didn't love the first paragraph. The first paragraph. Right, 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 all the way down the bottom. Yeah. All right. This is the first page of the book. The captain never drank, yet toward nightfall in that smoke-colored season between Indian summer and December's first true snow, he would sometimes feel half-drunken. 
He would hang his coat neatly over the back of his chair in the leaden station house twilight, say he was beat from lack of sleep, and lay his head across his arms upon the query room desk. Yet it wasn't work that wearied him so, and his sleep was harassed by more than a smoke-colored rain. The city had filled him with guilt of others. He was numbed by the charge sheet's accusations. For 20 years, upon the same scarred desk, he had been recording larceny and arson, sodomy and simony, boasting, hijacking, and shootings in sudden affray, blackmail and terrorism, incest and pauperism, embezzlement and horse theft, tampering and procuring abduction and quackery, adultery and mackery, till the finger of guilt, pointing so sternly for so long across the query room blotter, had grown born with it all at last and turned capriciously to touch the fibers of the dark gray muscle behind the captain's light gray eyes, so that though by daylight he remained a pursuer, there had come nights this windless first week of December when he had dreamed he was being pursued. And this comes at the very end, and it's entitled Epitaph. It's all in the wrist with a deck or a cue, and Frankie Machine had the touch. He had the touch and a golden arm. Hold up arm, he would plead, kissing his rosary once for help, with the faders sweating it out, and zing, there it was, little Joe, or Ader from Decatur. Double tray, the hard way, dice, be nice. When you get a hunch, bet a hunch. It don't mean a thing if it don't cross that string. Make me five to keep me alive. Tell them where you got and how easy it was. We remember Frankie Machine and the arm that always held up. We remember in the morning light when the cards are boxed and the long queues racked straight up and down like the all-night hours with the hot rush hours past. For it's all in the wrist with a deck or a cue. And if he crapped out when we thought he was due, it must have been that the dice were rolled, for he had the touch and his arm was gold. Rack up his cue, leave the steerer his hat. The arm that held up has failed at last. Yet why does the light down the dealer's slot sift soft as light in a troubled dream? A dream, they say, of a golden arm that belonged to the dealer we called machine. I knew him, of course, first um, through his books, reading him in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s, late 50s, early 1960s. And he seemed to me the inescapable inheritor of the tradition that had been by then established with Hemingway and Faulkner particularly. And I thought, this is the next generation. This is the master. This is a man who was born in, uh, I think, 1914, same year as my father. This was my father's generation in a way. Not, they were my grandfathers, this was my father. As, as a young writer, you have these fantasies about yourself and, and about literary history, I suppose. And I was a plumber at the time in, in the 1960, early 60s in New Hampshire, and I, and I was, hadn't been to college or anything. I was writing on my own. And I read an advertisement in, in the Atlantic Monthly for a Breadloaf Writers' Conference. And I hadn't any idea what a writers' conference was, but Nelson Auburn was going to be teaching there. 
Now, this is peculiar. I thought he was a Chicago guy, a writer of the streets and the downtrodden, and so and now he's going to be up in Vermont and Breadloaf uh, Writers' Conference teaching. But nonetheless, I sent a manuscript up, and, uh, the novel I had written, terrible novel called The Plumber, as you might expect. <laughs> uh, and in hope that Algren would read it, and he did. I, I was given a fellowship. I went up there. He did read it, or he skimmed it, is what he said. I skimmed it, kid. He said, this is a good paragraph here. And then he'd leaf through about 40 pages. He'd say, it's a good paragraph right there. And then he'd leaf through another 40 pages. There's a good paragraph. And, but at the end, what he said was, you got it, kid. You got the talent, but you only got it here and there and there. And you got to make a whole book that has the same as those paragraphs have. And I said, thank you, Mr. Algren. And, and that was really as much as I, I could hope for. And then he said, and I'll just finish the story out a little bit, because it gives you a sense of the idea of who he was. Um, he said, I see you got some wheels. I had a pickup truck at the time. And he said, I see you got some wheels. I want to get the hell out of here. This place is driving me nuts. Uh, let's get down to town for Middlebury and have some beers. And so I said, sure, Mr. Algren, anything you say. And, and, and I drove him into town and we started drinking. And then, and then he got a little tired of that. And he said, I got a pal up here named Paul Goodman somewhere in Vermont. Let's go see Paul Goodman. And so we drove to see Paul Goodman. And we stayed there for about three or four days, and, and then eventually drifted back to Breadloaf, which was run by them by the poet John Ciardi, who was incredibly pissed off because <laughs> his teacher had left with one of the students and had disappeared into the wilds of Vermont and then showed up three or four days later. So he fired Algren, and I was only there because of Algren. And so uh, we went back to my apartment, and he had a plane ticket back to Chicago that was a week later. And we went back to my apartment, and I had a little flat in Concord, New Hampshire. And I had time on my hands. And so we sat around and, and talked. And I had never had talk like this before in my life. I had never met a real writer who had been in the world, who was an adult whom I admired and whose work I, I revered. And he told stories, and he introduced me to this big world out there, of which he was both a part and not a part. It was this wonderful mingling of cranky outsiderness on the one hand and enthusiastic embeddedness in the literary world that I had never, never met before. It did change me. In years, we became friends. We stayed in touch until he died. But that was the essence of him for me at that time. And his work embodied that. It was both highly literary, deeply cultivated, and yet it was of the streets. It was the kind of writing you could only do if you identified with people who were completely unlike you, which was the case with him. I saw Hemingway on a street in New York. I think it was a year before he died, and it was quite a stunning moment. And that was the closest I had ever come to, to meeting a real writer, as, as Russell said. And then about two or three years later, I'd quit my job, and I, I uh, was, was part of a group that rented a house out at the beach on Long Island, on Fire Island. I took out my manual typewriter, my old portable Royal, because I was going to start working on my first novel. Suddenly, there was Nelson Algren sitting about five feet away from me in the local bar. And it turned out that Nelson was working on a book 
in part about Hemingway. The book would eventually be called, nonfiction would eventually be called Notes from a Sea Diary, Hemingway All the Way. So Nelson and I talked about Hemingway, and he, he was terribly frustrated because this part of the island had no electricity, and he had an electric typewriter. So I said to him, well, I'm not getting anywhere with my novel. Why don't you use my typewriter? And that's what happened. He took my typewriter, he wrote, he wrote part of the book on it, and we got to know each other. And I had a very similar experience to Russell's. He was a terrifically uh, funny, nice guy with a, a definite edge of bitterness toward uh, elements of the world that had conspired against him. He read some of my work and was very straightforward uh, with uh, material that he didn't like. He wasn't brutal. He was uh, just simply honest. And uh, we continued a, a correspondence for, for some years. He continued to look at my work, continued to comment on it. And when my first novel came out, uh, he was able to review it. It took him a while. Uh, this is the kind of writing he was doing then. He wasn't writing fiction for reasons I don't think I've ever understood. Uh, he would write pieces for $25 or $50 or $100 and place them wherever he could. And he wrote a review of my first novel and placed it in Rolling Stone. One sentence from that review appears on the back jacket of paperback editions of that first novel. And every time I see it, I feel a lot better than I had a, a moment before. Mm. He was a terrific guy to know, and uh, I'm roughly twice my age at, at that time, I think. I continue to see him in New York City occasionally, and I remember um, saying goodnight to him. He was staying at the Chelsea Hotel. We'd gone to dinner with some people he knew. I think they were television people. We sat down, we talked, they talked. I had very little to say. We ate, we drank, and then Nelson hit me on the arm and said, we're going now. And we got up and left, leaving not a dime. <laughs> we walked out kind of quickly, and then, and then we said good, good night uh, uh, as he headed for the Chelsea and I headed uh, to my little room to my first novel. We, uh, we corresponded after that, and uh, I'll always be grateful for it. Mm -hmm. One thing about listening to writers, whether that's a fiction or film or TV, you will hear stories. And I'm not talking just about made-up stories. I'm talking about stuff like this from Don DeLillo. Nelson was involved in a telephone scam when I knew him. I used to, he was back in Chicago, and he'd call me up occasionally. I was in New York. And he said, listen, uh, he said this parenthetically, if you ever get a call from the phone company, the person who's been calling you from Chicago is not Nelson Albright. And I said, I understand, Nelson. <laughs> and I did get that call, and I, I protected his identity and told him about it, and he was grateful. But what, he, he finally explained the, uh, the story behind it. There's a private code you could enter when you picked up the phone, and once you did, you could call anybody, anywhere, without having to pay. And Algren did this for a great period of time, and then finally learned himself that the code belonged to the actor, Paul Newman, who purposely 
gave those numbers to about 50 people because he was mad at the phone company. <laughs> <laughs> so um, once this was revealed, Nelson had to give up his telephone yeah. scam. <laughs> Next up, more from Amelia Gray on the world of TV. We're back in the Writers' Institute with Amelia Gray. She wrote for and co-executive produced the 2022 show Gaslit, a story of Watergate with Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. That show also happened to come from a podcast, Slow Burn. We considered structuring the whole enchilada in a similar way. Slow Burn, the Watergate season anyway, each episode is kind of a different angle on it and a different character is sort of in the center of it. But in the end, we look, step back and look at it and it's like, okay, what story are we really telling when somebody sits down and watches an episode of TV and then they come back the next week and they want to watch another episode? The more satisfying thing is to find out what's happening next with this character, you know, and Martha Mitchell is such a fascinating character. And then particularly when we had Julia Roberts sign on, we said, okay, we've got to tell a real complete story. So whereas Slowburn opens with her, touches on that story, you know, oh my God, here's this woman. She was the wife of the attorney general. She was held hostage in a hotel because she was going to speak out about Watergate. And then she did. She was the first person to go on the record about it. Like, so fascinating. It's the perfect hook into the podcast about sort of lesser known stories. But to us, it was like, well, then what? What happened to her marriage? What What was her relationship with her her children and and the more we dug into that the more it was like oh man we have a whole season we can do on this woman so your research interests the writer's research interests then became the viewer's interests you spoke of you know this is something that would want make a viewer want to keep looking for more mm-hmm. how do you think about audience differently when you're writing your short fiction I really just think of one or two people when I'm writing a short story. I was just thinking about a story I wrote called The Inheritance that I wrote after a friend of mine's mother passed away and she was dealing with all of the detritus of, you know, after somebody dies, there's so much that you have to deal with with their stuff and then of course with the death itself and who they were and what they meant to you and and I wanted to write a story about her particular relationship with that. And so when I was writing, I was really just thinking about her, wanting to show it to her and, you know, wanting to uncover something or understand something with her, for her or on her behalf. And that that's a, such a different mode than writing something for TV where you really you really are thinking of what do people want? You know, what is this kind of... Uh, faceless mass of viewers want because we're talking about millions of people instead of the people who will read a short story, which is a much more bespoke audience. Each is great because I can write a short story that's just meant for one person, but I was describing it to somebody else whose mom uh, died last night and she was just, she was like, yes, yes, that's exactly right. You know, it's the more personal you get, the more universal you get that's its own kind of magical thing. I read The Inheritance recently, and that is a tough, kind of brutal story. Mm -hmm. That abrasiveness that can go into short fiction doesn't often make its way into TV. Like TV, it has to, I guess, typically be pretty broadly appealing. There's a kind of ugliness that you can include in short fiction that 
doesn't make it onto TV usually. I agree. And part of it is that it gets challenged a lot. Um, What's interesting about TV is that the ugliness or the interesting things that make it through are things that the the creator and the writers believed in so much that it, it made it through this gauntlet that can actually sometimes make it even better. I've written plenty of short stories that I'm writing just to be abrasive, you know, <laughs> like there's they're trollish sometimes, especially when I was a little younger, but there, like there's one, this, this couple wants to get pregnant so badly and the woman reads something about whales. And so she does what she read the whales do and she cuts off her husband's penis and sews it up inside of her, you know, I'm trying to like push the, the idea. It's like, ah, oh, they want this thing so much. They're willing to be totally macabre and gross and, you know, self mutilating to do it. And, and, that feels real to me and, and recognizable to me. But if I was writing that as a TV show or a scene or something, you know, it's, it's like you got to go through a lot of executives with their heads screwed on really straight saying like, hey, does that make sense? Uh, that kind of pulls me out of it. You know, when she did that, it was kind of, can we do it in a different way that's, that's a little, can we suggest it instead of actually doing it? Or maybe she thinks about it or maybe it's a fantasy or a dream or if I were to make that scene and I really believed in it as an image, an idea, uh, you know, I'd have to say, no, I, I, this is, this is what it is. I, I, this is what it's gotta be. And if you've got good creative partners, which, which I have, then they're like, all right, that's what you think. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of moments in Gaslit where we do that. There's, there's a whole, in the seventh episode, this whole sort of passion play we do between Gordon Liddy and a rat. That's like, 10 or 15 minutes, it's totally insane. And when we're writing it, we're just sort of giggling madly about, you know, are we going to get away with this? Like, is this going to, is this going to work? You know, at one point I had him pick up the rat feces and, and eat it. You know, I was just like, this is, is this going to make it? And it largely did. In the end, he doesn't eat the rat poop. He uses it as kind of a, like a mark to mark his face. But I kind of like that even better. He's becoming the rat. But that was through challenge and challenge and challenge. Does he need to eat it? Does he need to eat it? And, I was, and it made me say to myself, like, well, what is he doing? I'm not just, I don't want to just do it to gross out. Like, does it make sense that he would eat it? If he was hunting a rat, would he eat the rat poop? That doesn't make any sense. Okay, what might make sense is if he tries to camouflage himself and the rat poop could be camouflaged. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> In a funny way, that's that's how this this thing that is also a gross out sort of thing, I think actually became a little bit better because it makes more sense in the mind of a, you know, demented person. The process of making TV will temper some of the more disgusting excesses and emphasize a kind of um, a logic. Mm-hmm. The disgusting stuff tends to not make it on TV. Are there particular moods that TV really strengthens? Well, there's something about subtlety uh, between people that TV can do that is harder to do in fiction. Not Certainly not impossible. People do it all the time. But I was just writing this morning and trying to describe the look between these two characters and trying to describe it in a way that's not overdoing it, you know, not wasting too many lines on it, because then that would look a little bit too, I don't know, like uh, manufactured or something. And But also not, trying to not underplay it so that when you're reading it, you notice it. 
And I was just like, man, if I could just have a clip of two actors looking at each other, <laughs> this would be so much easier. In fiction, you can go internal in a way that you can't on the screen unless you're doing VO or something like that. You have to do it in on the face of it. But there are moments when I'm like, man, this doesn't translate one-to-one quite as well. But I don't know. In terms of broad stroke stuff, I think the forums can do, they do comedy, you do drama, you can, I, I think it it all kind of plays out. It's just like a, to me, a different a different dialect on the same language. And that dialect is being presented by people interacting with each other when it's on TV. But they're not just people. Sometimes they're some of the biggest celebrities on the planet. It's <laughs> Julie Roberts. It's it's Sean Penn. It's, you know, Jonah mm. Hill, Emma Stone. These people have a peculiar kind of power over the audience. That's different from just a person. They're great performers, but mm-hmm. there's also that that strange celebrity thing. Well, <laughs> the celebrity thing is a whole other thing. That's I I can't quite wrap my mind around that part of it. But I will say that when it's somebody who's really a really fine actor like Julia Roberts, I'm reminded that that it's a team sport. You know, when you collaborate with somebody and you're open to their ideas, something comes out that the two you made that that neither one of you could have made independently and that's and that's the beauty of collaboration. You know, if you get someone like Emma Stone reading your words or Julia Roberts or Sean Penn or these incredibly talented people there, it's, you know, magic. Is it different if you are a showrunner? That thing I was talking about earlier about really standing up for what you believe in in terms of rat poop, that becomes the whole thing every time, every day, is like you have to have the idea of the story firmly in your mind and and you got to take it seriously so that when you're you know when somebody who's really smart and funny and great is pitching you something and you're liking it you can still take a step back and say uh I like it but that doesn't make any that doesn't that doesn't work with what I'm trying to trying to do here you know that's where I've learned from from the greats you know you can pitch something to Sam Esmail and he'll nod and tend his fingers and say no, it doesn't make any sense. And he's <laughs> and he's not saying it doesn't make logical sense or it doesn't it doesn't make sense, you know, that you pitched it. It's it doesn't make sense in his head. That's where he's trying to get everything to make sense in the story that he's been working on for a decade that he's trying to wrap up in this episode, you know? So it's got to make sense. <laughs> that sounds like an incredible exercise just having ideas rejected directly to one's face. I will say it was really useful and lucky of me that I got to work with Pat Somerville for my first job because it was like having my friend reject an idea had less of a sting to it. But it's like a, it, there's a detachment that's required that you got to learn, even when it's your friend. I, I think the biggest thing I had to learn was like how to make an idea mechanically work is just as important as making it work emotionally. Different writers in a writer's room have different skills and my skills started out as like, oh, I have this image. I just have this this funny image, and that's that's interesting. And sometimes that's useful, but it becomes more useful. It's like if you can say, oh, I have this funny image, this interesting image, and it actually works for the plot because when White Rose comes out of the 
of the office and and everybody's dead and she's stepping over everyone and you know walking out of the jail like that would be that would be really striking and that's how we get her out of jail she yeah that's right they could come in and they could set off a they could set off a device that you know causes everybody's electronics to overload and blows up their pacemakers <laughs> you know and then you can see the idea just spins out and bigger and bigger and bigger and and then it either works or it doesn't and then you move on and the other thing I had to learn with TV writing is to not count, and everybody does this at first, to count, not count the ideas you have on the board and not call it a good day or a bad day if, if you don't get anything up on the board. It's just like writing fiction. At the end of the day, sometimes it's like, oh, that is a day of writing that I'm going to delete completely tomorrow. You know, it's just worthless day. But it kind of iterated me towards something else. And that's the thing about writer's rooms as well. You have to think of yourself as one organism and you're, everybody is kind of throwing out ideas and throwing out things that don't work, but in showing you what doesn't work, it gives you an idea that does work and you eventually get towards something that is good. When I hear people talk about happy writer's rooms, it sounds like one of the sort of best places to be. Uh-huh. <laughs> it sounds like everyone's very grown up. You don't see someone have, whose pitches are all getting shot down and you're not like, man, you know, I'm glad I'm not that guy. You, you don't have those moments. <laughs> Well, I'm not telling those stories. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I mean it all comes out. It all comes out in the wash. It's like, yeah, I would have my, uh, I would have my good day. Martha Mitchell would say, I have my my good days and my bad days. Days when I'm terribly blue. <laughs> you know, I, the goal is to not take it personally. The goal is to not count the ideas on the board, and that's the best case scenario. And sometimes you're not living the best case scenario. But I don't know. When I first worked in advertising, I had the same. Thing I, this pitch of mine about Jimmy Dean has got to go. Like, why isn't going? People don't understand. And it's just it's ego, you know, and and wanting some confirmation that I'm okay at this. And and eventually you get enough confirmation that you're okay at it that you can relax a little bit. As with as with anything, if you keep trying. Wait, are are you are you at all responsible for those Jimmy Dean ads of that guy standing in a in a giant sun suit and uh, like saying good morning to you? <laughs> No, the sun predated me. Actually, when uh, when I was working at the agency, we were trying to kill the sun. <laughs> I left before. I don't know if we ended up succeeding in killing the sun. I really wanted to. I really wanted to do a series of of completely bonkers ads called Sausage Party that predates the movie Sausage Party. But it didn't happen. Um, I, I don't know. I had a bad attitude in advertising. Suffice to say. Do you think you would have become a writer for TV prior to this era? There, there were fewer networks. There were f- much fewer women working in TV, fewer women working in features. I think odds are I, pr- I might not be in it at all because I, I also kind of came in without town industry connections until my friend happened to make a TV show. <laughs> I didn't have, you know, family or, uh, and I didn't go to school for it. So uh, I, in terms of, you know, the likelihood of working in it just practically, I think, I think I probably would have stuck uh, to fiction and maybe advertising and teaching. Advertising, if I'm lucky, there weren't a lot of women there either, even 20 years ago. But um, I, I don't know if my sensibilities would have really fit in, in a lot of, a lot of what TV was before that era. Um, Features was a weirder place back then. You know, you could make something strange and 
you could scrounge together the money for it, you might have a little more luck with it. And it was a little bit less Marvel and a little bit more not Marvel. Um, I don't know. I came, I came to this town wanting to just be near people that, that were creative. And because I, I came to visit LA in 2011 and everybody I met was doing something really interesting and not just industry wise, you know, it's like I, I had an optometrist friend who was writing weird short stories and, you know, a couple of friends who were, who were making, you know, web shorts or whatever. And, you know, a, somebody who's writing, just started writing for TV and, you know, but was in this writer's room and about werewolves. And it was just like, everybody around me was doing something strange and interesting. And it, it was just like, gosh, I just want to be here. I didn't come here thinking I could even write for TV. I, I thought, I just want to be, I just want to be writing my short stories around people who are making interesting, cool stuff. And in, in particularly in that direction, I mean, I think of your, your short stories as, you know, it's weird fiction that, that seems to be kind of a, there's a, a Western-ish yeah. uh, thing in, in your stories. Like, is it something about just going West that was compelling? It was like, like this is the creative center I'm I'm searching for it's not New York it's not somewhere else yeah New York was never for me it's very cold and hard to live there I don't understand it and uh LA LA made a lot of sense and just people are out here are so strange I, I was coming from Austin Texas where you know keep Austin weird and uh we're so weird and this is so weird and and then I came to LA and it's like this is a weird weird ass town like I like I like it. This is not like festival weird. This is found a pair of human lungs on the street weird. This is really a strange place. A strange place that seems to be increasingly writer friendly, at least in TV. We started this conversation talking about writers going Hollywood, the history of writers going Hollywood. Um, Do you get the sense in this TV era that Hollywood is becoming an increasingly writerly industry? Yeah, I mean, I think TV is a writer's medium. In features, they'll still take it away from you and have you do a bunch of rewrites and, and then it's the director's baby and that's that's just kind of how it is. But TV is just so big and unwieldy that they need the writers, so they keep us around. Amelia Gray, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. My pleasure. Thanks for talking. Thank you for listening to the Writers' Institute, the show from the New York State Writers' Institute and LitHub. My gratitude also to William Kennedy, founder of the Writers' Institute, and Amelia Gray, author of Isadora and writer for shows that have included Maniac, Mr. Robot, and Gaslit. I'm Adam Coleman. Thanks again.